Well, good evening, everyone. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad we sang that song. I don't know if you noticed, but we sang some Easter songs. And I don't know if you're like me, but I think we need Easter songs more than just at Easter to celebrate the new life that is ours and to also remember how many are in need of that freedom. So we've been talking about after life. And I hope that you've heard or understood by now that the Bible doesn't talk as much as our culture wants us to think. It talks about afterlife issues. We think that heaven and hell is just the stock and trade and the main focus of the Bible. And the truth is, it's not exactly so. So the first week we talked about heaven. And what we mean by heaven is effectively God's realm. And that's less about a country club in the clouds and more about God's space that, sure, is a resting place for those who have gone on in death. But more than that, the trajectory is less about a place that we go and more about heaven coming down to earth more and more and more. Last week, we talked about hell. And if we could do a commercial like the Dos Equis guy, the most interesting man in the world, it would sound something like this. I don't always talk about hell, but when I do, I preach for an hour. I think I had a lot to say about a topic we just don't talk about very often and what we mean when we say hell, what the Bible means when we talk about hell. Broadly speaking, I think hell is whatever that experience is of a person that has disconnected themselves from God and life and love. And whatever that experience is after death and ultimately is something that is disconnected. It's death. It's something that we frankly don't want to experience. So the good news and invitation is to be free and to find no condemnation in Christ Jesus because what's on offer from him is life and life eternal. Eternal not just in quantity but in quality. The life of heaven coming down and filling our lives and our earth. And that's what the world needs so much more of. So we talked about heaven, we talked about hell, and then tonight we're talking about resurrection. Now... I've told you that the Bible doesn't talk a lot about heaven or a lot about hell, but we find in the New Testament a lot of talk of resurrection. And more than anything, we see that Jesus' resurrection is kind of the biggest deal. It cannot be overstated how big a deal Jesus' resurrection is. But before we talk about that, I want to plug our Q&A. If you've heard the last couple messages, if you stick around tonight online or next week, would you write down these questions on these note cards here in our gathering? We would like to do a Q&A at the end of the month, September 30th, the fifth Saturday. We'd also encourage you to email adam at tncgarland.com if you're listening to this later or watching this online. We would love some of those Q&A options. There's no dumb questions. You can be anonymous, 
but we would love to unpack and dissect this interesting sermon series I've really enjoyed. Now, tonight, as I said, we're talking about resurrection, and I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Corinthians. It's in the second half of your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't hear or take away much of what follows in my sermon, would you at least do me this favor? Read this chapter sometime tonight or tomorrow. Because have you ever had an experience reading something in the Bible that just straight up knocks you upside the head? An experience when you're reading something and you go, wait a minute. Like, I feel like I've seen this. I feel like I've heard this. I feel like I might have read this. But there's this moment when you're like reading it for the first time. Like really actually letting this thing hit you in the gut. Have you had that experience or just me? Man. I had this experience reading 1 Corinthians 15. I was probably a senior in, gosh, I wanted to say high school. I may have been in college. It was a while that I finally opened it up and read this, and I was like, wait a minute, resurrection for us? And I had this experience thinking, why have I not heard this? How did I miss this? And then I thought back to a lot of well-meaning funerals that I've attended growing up in the South in Christian circles. And a lot of the well-meaning funerals that I attend sound something like this. Well, we know that finally he left this old body in the ground. He shuffled off that old body and he's now finally whole and complete. And he's looking down on us from heaven. Have you heard a funeral like this? Well, he finally shuffled off that old thing. And now he's got a brand new existence. And I thought, that sounds good. But it also kind of sounds half true. We'll talk about that. When I was thinking about how did I miss this, I also thought about a lot of well-intentioned Easter sermons. Easter sermons that sounded like this. Well, because Jesus died on the cross, we know that we're forgiven and freed. And he rose again just so God could, like, prove it. The thing is that the Gospels never explain or describe the resurrection of Jesus. So I think when we get to Easter, we kind of are mystified. We don't quite know how to get our hands around it. The cross, we feel like we can get something out of. And so many Easter sermons just shuffle away from the mystery of the resurrection and just jump back to that thing that forgave us and freed us. Well-intentioned, but only half true. When I thought about why did I miss this, how did I not hear this, the truth is because my church, when I was growing up, never, ever talked about the resurrection of our body. And then you come across a song like this. 
I'll be honest, I love this band. I love this guy's voice. He's a Texan. I'm wearing my cowboy boots tonight. It's a song called Cannot Have My Soul by Robbie C. Banch. He was from Waco originally, spent a lot of time in Houston. How many of you have heard of Robbie C. Band or heard some of their tunes? Love the guy, love that stuff. This song I'm not so much a fan of. In 2012, these are the lyrics. If it's hard to read here, you can find it on the screen back there. The lyrics go like this. Verse 1, I'm a soul with a body of my own. And there's a time I'll lay this body down. When I go, don't mourn for what is lost, but rejoice for what is found. And if the devil, this is the chorus, wants to come for me, I will tell him to his face, you can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. In the heavens I will be singing songs of hallelujah. You can have my body, but you cannot have my soul. Now, hmm, my first thought is, I would prefer not to tell anything to the devil to his face. Thank you very much. My second thing is, I don't think I'd like to give him anything either. My third thing is, whatever this is, this is not Christian hope. I love Robbie C. Band. I love their music. This is not Christian music. I just have to say that flatly. Because Christian hope is of a bodily resurrection after a heavenly rest. God cares so much for you and your whole person that he ain't even going to leave your body in the ground, much less let the devil have it either. Resurrection is simply the emphasis of Christian hope, and it's been de-emphasized. We put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Christian hope in American pop Christianity has become you can pray a prayer and you can go to heaven when you die. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And then John in Revelation 21, 22 says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. Heaven's coming here. And then Robbie C. says, you can have my body, but you can't have my soul. And then Paul and John and Peter say, no, 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 no. He's going to raise that too. Christian hope is the bodily resurrection. We will be raised just like Jesus was raised. It's what Michelle read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5. It's what John says in 1 John 3. We will be like him someday, for we will see him as he is. Colossians 3, Romans 8:23, the restoration of our bodies. We don't get a lot of verses about heaven and hell as popularly conceived. We get so much about resurrection. Yet it's still a mystery. So what we're going to do is a brisk walk through that chapter that blew my mind, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to do a brisk walk through a mind-blowing chapter to do these three things. Number one, explain why resurrection is the biggest deal. Number two, we're going to explore the mystery of the resurrection. Just because we know that it's going to happen doesn't we mean we know much of the mechanics as Michelle mentioned earlier. And then finally, number three, I'm going to try to leave you with a good word of hope as we emphasize the hope of resurrection. 
putting the right emphasis on the correct syllable of Christian hope. You with me? We're going to read the longest section of the evening right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start in verse 12. But just while you're getting your Bible or swiping back up, I'll remind you that 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, let me just lay the groundwork and remind you of the gospel that I told you. That Jesus died just like the scripture said he would. And on the third day he rose just like the scripture said he would. And by the way, tons of us saw him just as Peter told you and I told you. And so he also came and talked about how there is a resurrection for us as well. Because I think what we're going to see is that a lot of people were saying, yeah, there is no resurrection. Paul's going to address it. Let's pick it up in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, now pause. I want you to start keeping a tally of all the things that hinge on Christ's resurrection. Paul's going to give us like a half dozen little examples of why it's the biggest deal. You ready? If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified that God raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. What he's saying is, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we're preaching nonsense, your faith is useless, and we're bad-mouthing God because we've been running around telling him he raised this guy Jesus from the dead. It is the biggest deal. And by the way, just so we can drive the point home even further, and I promise you I'll finish reading. In the book of Acts, they never ever mention hell in their preaching, ever. They never say, you'll go to heaven when you die in their preaching. But you know what they said in every single sermon? That God raised Jesus from the dead. It is, say it with me now. The biggest deal. Let's continue. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Are you playing along and counting how big of a deal this is? Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Which men is he talking about? Verse 22. For as in Adam all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then Paul goes on to talk about how all of this is going to be happening when Christ returns, but that's next week's 
sermon. The first thing I want to do in our brisk walk through chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is to explain why the resurrection is the what? The biggest deal in Christianity. I had a friend years ago who had walked away from the faith and we met up and he was telling me all about how he was starting to like pray again and read the Bible again and he was kind of surprised by this and felt like he was reclaiming a lot of that old like language and practices and the whole time I'm trying to be super cool and pretend like this is not a big deal and I'm like uh-huh tell me more and he's like yeah and you know I just Jesus is such a compelling figure and I, I feel like I miss him man I, I don't know and I'm like yeah I don't either <laughs> tell me more and I've told this story before so you might remember what happens next what happened next was he said I'm not sure that he was raised from the dead but he's pretty awesome. And I said, that's kind of a big deal. But it's a start that you might come to Jesus. But if you were counting in that brief passage of a long, mind-blowing chapter, you will see so many instances of why everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If you count the if Christ had not been raised, you would have heard that our preaching, our mission is useless, our faith is futile. We won't be raised. Those who've died are lost. We don't have much of a hope. We're not freed from our sin. So listen to this. The resurrection is not some cool add-on feature like the backup camera in your minivan. It's the dadgum engine of the whole thing. And you say, well, it's miraculous and it's crazy and it's mystical. And I say, yes. But this is not something that you can deduce and discern like learning the list of all the state capitals or that one plus one equals two. It is something that is to be walked and lived into in faith and trust that God actually cares about you and your body and this world. And so when you come to Jesus and you see him raising Lazarus, it's as if he's telling the whole world, Look what happens when God's kingdom comes. And then when he goes and he feeds a multitude, he says, look what happens when you open yourself to God's kingdom. And then he goes and he touches leopards and he heals them and he releases people from darkness of demons and oppression. And he says, look what happens when the kingdom comes. And then he dies. And he shows us, look what happens when God experiences our brokenness, and he deals with our sin, and he absorbs our pain, and he experiences death so that we know he knows what it's like to be human. And then a quiet Saturday, and then as we sang, on the third day, he's raised from the dead, and look, it puts the world on notice that the things Jesus did in his life were not some cool party trick or aberration of a magician or spiritual teacher. This is a blazing sign that has dawned and light and love are bursting forth and it's beckoning the world, do not be afraid because if not even death has the last word, then you need not worry because God is stronger than death. God is stronger than sin. 
God is stronger than your brokenness and your hurts and your hang-ups and your habits. And yes, you still experience them. Jesus did too. But it puts the world on notice that something cosmic has happened. It's not an add-on. It is the thing. And because of it, the rest of the New Testament is spent breathlessly looking back and saying, oh, now everything has changed. Because we used to not worship with those people, and now we do. We used to worry if we could ever experience God's spirit. Now God's spirit is in little old us. We used to wonder if we could live this way, and now we can. We used to wonder if we could forgive and love and give and serve and face death in Christ, and now we can because he's alive and we're alive in him. Amen? It's not an add-on. It's not, do I want power windows? The thing doesn't work if you don't have the resurrection. You cannot overstate the importance of the resurrection, which is why the first time I ever preached an Easter sermon at what would become the neighborhood church, I preached like four of them because the resurrection was this open secret that I never grew up hearing as a young disciple. I heard well-intentioned Easter sermons that talked about the cross but couldn't make heads or tails of the new creation being born and bursting through the tomb. Jesus being the first fruit, as Paul says, and we follow as the harvest that will be. Because I heard too many well-intentioned, well-meaning funerals that talked about us on clouds and let's just leave our bodies down. And I, I, I miss that God said, no, 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 I'm not even going to waste that. I'm trying to renew it all. And so then I read this book. It's called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. We did a class on it years ago. Remember when we used to do classes in this church? Lord willing, we'll be doing a lot more of them soon. This book, I cannot overstate to you how vital this book is in my own thinking. And I would say in the broader American church's thinking. It's pretty big, pretty serious, but it's not as serious as his other books about the resurrection, I would heartily recommend this Surprised by Hope. This is from N.T. Wright. And so I read this book, and I read 1 Corinthians 15, and I was so moved that I got a tattoo. And it's a coffin with a tree sprouting out from it. And it says, rise again. Because what happens in the next section we'll read is a metaphor where Paul will talk about how we sow our bodies, but what sprouts is something that looks like that body that Jesus had. And so this was a surprise. And what started in the Old Testament as a whisper that our bodies would get raised in Ezekiel and the dry bones, in Isaiah 26, if you're taking notes, in Daniel 11 and 12, where the righteous and unrighteous will be raised in bodies Understand that it was whispered at, glimpsed at, but now it becomes a shout in the New Testament. And it is, say it with me now, the biggest deal. So in the New Testament, we can unpack in places like 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, who will be raised? Who do you think? Seems like everybody in Revelation. It seems like everybody when we talked about it in Matthew 25 last week. It seems like everybody is going to be raised and stand before the judgment seat. 
It's a mystery. Some will go to life, and some, I think, will cease to exist. Another question, when will they be raised? Well, this is a lot more clear. Almost always when we're talked about being raised, there's something in that orbit about it's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And you say, that's wild. And I say, "Uh uh-huh. And you say, I don't know what that'll look like. I said, I don't either. But this is our hope. And this is what the New Testament teaches. And why will all this happen? Because something happened on Easter that rocked the world. So Jesus Christ is the first, the prototype. He's the one that rolls off the lot. And he's got that new creation engine pulling the whole Jesus movement forward. And we are waiting back, following him. But we're still rocking a 1988 Pinto. Did they already stop making Pintos by 1988, Jared? Oh, Eileen had one. Now you're talking. Well, I'm sure it was a great one, and you're great too. But we're just not exactly the brand new prototype Jesus model. But all will someday look like this Jesus who has been raised from the dead. And it's the biggest deal. Let's keep walking through 1 Corinthians 15. Y'all still with me? Verse 35. So now somebody asks the same kinds of questions I was just asking. Well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come back to life unless it dies. He's sitting there thinking they should know that in order for something to sprout, the seed must be buried and transition. So then verse 37, he goes, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Do you see his strange metaphor that he's saying? Does an oak tree look like an acorn? Not exactly. So there's some mystery in which we put our loved ones in the ground, and we don't say, hey, devil, you can have the body, but you can't have the soul. We say, no, no, no. We're sowing this seed in the sure and certain hope That whatever sprouts will look a little different. It will be a body that's fit for heaven. Which is why he goes on from 39 to 41 basically saying not all flesh is the same. That turtle's got turtle flesh and we've got man flesh and you've got dog flesh and sun and star. All these things are different. He's saying we're going to sow this one kind of flesh but there's also a different kind of material that God has, and it's a mystery, but that's the stuff that will happen when we're raised. So he continues on in verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. Watch the contrast. But then it's going to be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Now, pause real quick. And this is the same that's true in 2 Corinthians 5. This is where our Bibles fail us. Our translations of our Bibles fail us. Don't think immaterial when you read the word spiritual. Think about this. If I tell you, what's the difference between a sailboat 
and a steamboat. They're both boats. They both operate in the water. But what's the difference between a sailboat and a steamboat? The juice. Miguel said the juice. That sounds funny. He said what? Did you say the toots? That's even worse. I wanted you to say juice, actually. I never thought I would prefer juice to toots, but the idea is that it's the thing that keeps it going, Miguel. What propels, you so, I love you. What gets the sailboat going, people? Wind. What gets the steamboat going, people? Not toots. Steam. There's something of the natural body, and it's toots, that are energized by the stuff of life. And there's something about a spiritual body that is animated by, guess what? The pneuma, the spirit that is heavenly. Jesus has a body that is fit for heaven. God will give us a body fit for heaven that can live a life in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Christian hope. And man, is it a mystery. So we're going to explore this mystery of resurrection. Of course they were confused. And that's why Paul tried to give them this little bit of a metaphor. But understand what he was trying to convey is the second step of our afterlife two-step. I mentioned this in our first week about heaven. It's one step in a two-step journey. If you are following Jesus, if you said yes to Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus, guess what? Step one after you die, I believe you are resting in God's presence. We don't have a lot of verses, but we have a few and enough about God to know that you won't cease You'll be resting and experiencing something of the life and love of God as your body stays in the ground and you, whatever you is, is with God. And you can call that heaven. You with me on that? Step one. Now, step two is what Paul is describing here. Step two is what every one of your beloved family members is also waiting for. They're resting with God. And we're tooting down here. But when Christ returns, those that are with him will come with him. And we standing up there looking, saying, that's crazy. We'll be changed along with them. Is that a mystery or what? Yeah. But this is Christian hope. Which is why I love what N.T. Wright says in his book, Surprised by Hope. What we're talking about with resurrection is life after, life after death. Did you catch that? Life when you die, yes. Your grandma is there resting with God. But she and I are also waiting for life after, life after death. Does that make sense? Here's another way I could say it. Christian hope envisions a new kind of bodily existence for God's new creation. Hope, then is the outcome of a new worldview when you realize that a new world is possible. If you think that death is not the end, does that influence the way you live your life? 
Not like you're going to go skateboard off the Grand Canyon. And yes, there's mystery in death. But isn't it a hope and a comfort to know that God just might be stronger than death? Isn't it a comfort to know that God is stronger than sickness? Isn't it a comfort to know that we will not ultimately be lost? Hope is the outcome of a new worldview. Because I believe that a new world is possible and that life and resurrection await us, I am going to enter into this world through a lens that has an undercurrent of life and love and hope, that God is relentless. And I believe that we can reclaim this metaphor at funerals. The funeral I did a month ago, I went to the graveside. It was short and sweet. I read something from 1 Corinthians 15, and I talked about how we sow our beloved into the ground in the sure and certain hope that whatever God raises will be something new and imperishable and beautiful. And it can only happen because of his power and his grace. This is Christian hope. And finally, I want to emphasize the hope of resurrection. So let's read our last section in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. Because he still has an enemy to dismantle. Verse 50. So I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. Our Teuton body is not fit to inherit the heavenly space when it comes in fullness. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all die or sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. This is from Isaiah. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then he quotes Hosea. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. He talks about that in Romans. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, death is the last enemy. It's not friend, although it does give release to those who are suffering. But death is not God's intention. Death is the last enemy, and it's also the ultimate weapon of all the oppressors that want to fear monger and wield power. And so these Christians that followed Jesus that dared to believe a new world in a new way was possible, faced death with a kind of bravery that Rome and Caesar could not begin to comprehend. Because if we rob them of their ultimate weapon, 
because Jesus is raised and we're in him and he's returning to bring us to resurrection fullness, then what ultimately can they do? Hope is the outcome of that new worldview when you realize that a new world is possible. The tomb is empty, so death is not the end. And because a tomb is empty, a new world is possible. The tomb is empty. Do not be afraid. This is why God put the world on notice when he raised Jesus from the dead. And if it's true that he's raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then he's the world's true Lord. That God's new creation has begun. And so listen, that means that we have work to do. Because we're witnesses to tell others that he is Lord and that we are inviting them into life. That in 2 Corinthians 5, after the tent talk, we are called ambassadors to announce to the world, be reconciled to God. Because what God has done in Christ on the cross is thrown open his arms of love and says, come, come to the party, come to life. Listen to me. God has reconciled himself to the world. There is not one person, one sinner, one saint, name them, that God does not love relentlessly and longs for desperately. There is not one human person on this planet that God does not love and long for. It is a big difference to say that God has reconciled himself to the world as it is to say, but oh, would you reconcile yourself to the love of God? Would you dare to believe that he doesn't want anything to go? He wants all of you now and forever. You see, we're so conditioned to feel shame. We are so trained to distrust our yearnings and longings. We are so trained to distrust our body and our desires. And it's really true what the old saint said, that our hearts are actually restless until they find their rest in him. God has reconciled himself to you. There are people that don't know that they can be raised to love in life. And when we were singing that song earlier, I could not help begging God to rescue and restore and raise them up from the darkness of shame and desperation and feeling like you're nothing. Oh, that God would raise us so that we might know that we are loved and longed for and embraced. That there is nothing now that stands between us except our own intention to say, I want you. I want that love. Yesterday, I was at a conference at a church in East Dallas, and we were led by a kind of contemplative, meditative prayer space. And one of the pieces of that exercise was asking us to step into a memory, a moment where we felt unconditional love. And I was grateful for two things. Number one, that I had a memory. And number two, that I sensed that God was in and around and through it. 
And then when we were debriefing from that time, they were asking people's experience of that. And probably six people shared. Half of them said, I struggled to find a memory where I felt unconditional love. And that should break our hearts. Would this community be a new creation, resurrection kind of community that says a new world is possible? Unconditional love is available. We can give you a shadow. We can show you a little bit of the already. But will you hope and long with us? Because I believe that we just got a little sample, just a little taste. Because in the freezer of heaven, we've got the Costco huge box of four billion count of love and life. You just got a sample. Would we be a resurrection, new creation community? Because I want you to know that God's commitment to renewal and resurrection shows us that nothing good will be lost in the end. So would you join him now? I want to close with an illustration and one final big idea. Last summer we went to Disney World. And I was thinking about it today because we went to a birthday this morning. And some of my family is going in October. And it made me very, very sad. Because I love Disney. And I feel like, thank you mom and dad for making Disney possible for me and my kids last summer. But they also made it possible when I was about Emma and Nora's age. We had family in Florida, and when we visited, we would go. And one of the memories that stuck with me the most was this place. How many of you have ridden Space Mountain? Eebies? Becky, yes, yes, yes. Are we Space Mountain fans? I was a big Space Mountain fan. And so I was trying to convey to the girls this awesome roller coaster. It's kind of unlike the other stuff in the Magic Kingdom. And then we happened upon this. And they're like, where's the roller coaster? And I say, it's in there. And they say, no, it's not. I say, yeah, trust me. And they say, well, what's it like? And I say, well, it's like dark, but there's also a lot of light. And they said, what are you talking about? And I said, trust me. And then we get in line. And are Disney lines long or are they short? They are long. And you crazy Disney people tell me, yeah, but it's immersive and it's cool. It's long. It's long, Fisher. And the whole time I was trying to explain to them how wonderful this is, that this is a, the biggest part of my childhood experience at Disney is awesome. I remember my mom's hair like blowing in the wind, and it was dark, but it's light, and I, I kept trying to explain it. And then even as the, 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 the closer we got, they still couldn't make heads or tails of what's going on. And then, God bless her, I asked her permission. But Emma, I got to tell you, was like not having it. She was getting real anxious. She does this at Six Flags. She was not really wanting to ride this thing. I asked her permission. And so finally I got down and I said, listen, you can do this. You will love this. You'll be right behind me. Trust me. So they got on and guess what their favorite ride at Disney World was? It was Space Mountain. And I believe that she finally got on, not to overstate this, but because basically I said, you're not going to die. You'll be okay. They went ahead through the dark, not because they knew what on earth that building was or what it was inside, but because they knew me. So I'll leave you with this. We hold on to this wild, mind-blowing, mysterious, crazy, unearthly, otherworldly, heavenly hope. 
not because we know how or when or really why. We hold on to this hope because we know Jesus. And he's gone before us. And when we go through death, we can sit there and say, Jesus, you've been here too, right? Will you go with me now? And we rest with the Father and we say, you've been here too, right? Today, paradise. Would you stay with me? And then when Jesus returns and we're right there with him, behind him, coming to meet all those who are left in their natural bodies, I don't know how and why and when that all will work, but I know Jesus. And we say, Jesus, will you make sense of this? Will you make sense of the pain and brokenness and darkness and sin and and loss now? And then Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. And I will wipe away every tear from every eye. I'm the beginning and the end. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection and the life. Amen and amen. Go now as God's chosen witness to testify that Christ has been raised and that we are raised with him. May God raise you from all that would entomb you. May Christ Jesus call you by name and go ahead of you. May the Holy Spirit empower you for what lies ahead. And in the end, may you hear the words, rise up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Go in the peace of this sure and certain hope.